Alright, well, got the few, the, pro- the proud, Semperfi, right? Alright, so I'm going to open up things uh, and we'll read through. Yeah, we're, gonna, we're going to tell the Christmas story and sing Christmas carols. That's what I'm going to tell people. That's what I'm going to do. So after uh, Child of Bethlehem, which we do twice, Tim, that'll be your cue to up and announce and then we'll do another scripture segment, and then it's sermon. And yeah, so we, we do have a response a response song to your sermon. I hope it fits. I'm sure. You know, you told me one of your th- themes was going to be God sent His Son, and that's the first words of <laughs> first verse of that song. And so uh, you're going to pray at, at the end of your sermon, so we'll speak up during the prayer with that song. I haven't thought what we're going to do for a post. Maybe we'll do Because He Lives. That The way we do it with the devil. Sound good? All right. All right. I guess we're ready. We didn't practice other than this morning, so we're on the edge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I learned that I have to teach Doug how to read music because he was on a totally different song and <laughs> saying, yeah, these chords are all messed up. All right, shall we do the usual? I'll pray for you and you pray. Yeah, you, you've had to come up with two messages two days apart. Oh, okay. That's allowed. Yeah, unfortunately, people don't always remember sermons forever. <laughs> oh, okay. That's, that's totally allowed. It's like the greatest, the greatest hits. <laughs> All right. Lord, I pray for Tim as he brings your word to us. This this word that you've given him that has stood the test of time. How you speak to us through him today. Give him peace and a sense of your spirit. Bold and confident that here. Well, good morning, everyone. 
I use the word everyone fairly lightly. It looks like things are fairly sparse here. So let me welcome all of you who should be here but are online. Welcome. We're glad that you're here worshiping with us this morning. It is the day after Christmas, and so we're still in the Christmas mood, Christmas spirit. And so we are going to uh, retell the Christmas story and sing some Christmas carols this morning. And I'm glad that you're all here to join us in that this morning. So let's begin our time of, uh, of celebrating Christmas uh, by just refreshing our minds about the Christmas story. So this pa- passage of Scripture, let's read it together. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's stand together and sing some songs of Christmas.
be seated. Well, good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning. I hope you had a Merry Christmas with you and your family. Yeah, good to gather together this morning with you all to worship God. As Eric said, we're still kind of celebrating um, yeah, the Christmas spirit. So if you're visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're glad you're joining us this morning couple of announcements to bring to your attention. So if you 
If you look in your bulletin, if you got one of those this morning, like we're coming up on the new year, and the new year often leads to a time when we kind of reflect on how we've been living kind of with spiritually our relationship with God over the course of the past year. Sometimes we make choices about how we're going to spend the next year relating to God. And so in your bulletin, I have a couple of resources that I have found helpful over the last couple of years that I've tried to read through my Bible and do devotion. So that's obviously not an exhaustive list, but just a couple of resources that I find helpful are in there for you. Also, in your bulletin, you'll find this information about Breeze, this little insert. Um, and so Breeze is a service we use that has both contact information for people in the church and also um, access to your kind of online giving. So one note about this thing, this paper that's in there, like this is provided by Breeze. Like we don't use every feature that's listed on there. Right? So we don't really track attendance um, with Breeze. We don't um, necessarily use the events feature, but the primary things we use it for are at the directory and to track online giving. And with online giving, on the back of your bulletin, there's directions for accessing your year-end giving statement. Um, if you're looking for that for tax purposes or whatever else, your online giving statement can be accessed through Breeze and there's directions on the back of your bulletin there. So I'm, again, just thankful you're here as we come together, as we worship, and I just want to spend a little bit of time now praying as we kind of continue to prepare our heart and mind to worship God. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the chance to gather once again as your people as we spent yesterday celebrating the birth of your son to not get the chance to come back together and to worship you once again to pour out our thanks for all that you've done for us in sending Jesus Pray for us that we would come before you now in worship, that our heart would be fixed on all the good you have done for us in Christ and sending your Son to come to earth to live a sinless life and to die in our place for our sins. God, as we reflect on Christmas, as we remember all you've done for us, would you move us to worship you. Yeah, we pray for those in our church body who that feeling of praise may be hard to get to right now because of trials and hardships they're experiencing in their lives. Pray that you would be with them that they would have a sense of your closeness and your goodness even in the midst of trial and hardship. We pray for churches around the world who had to celebrate Christmas in a far less public way than we do here because of fear of persecution. And if they gather this morning, pray that you would be with them. Help them to worship you freely even in the midst of persecution. 
God, as we worship this morning, as we come to your word this morning, pray that you would be at work in each of our heart and minds to cause us to glorify you and cause us to be conformed more and more into the image of your Son. Would we be continually amazed by what a great God you are and what an amazing Savior Jesus is. And will we worship because of that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's continue. I'm going to read a little more of that passage from Luke. It'll be on the wall. It, it occurs to me I might not be reading the same version, but that would just enrich your experience. So let's hear the, the next part of the Christmas story. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them and said, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people, because the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly, with the angel, was joined a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those with whom God is so let's uh, stand and let's uh, continue to sing of this wonderful Savior.
thank you for the chance to praise you as we come to your word now. Would you be at work in each of our hearts to draw closer to yourself? In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. So I typically find very little enjoyment of in like watching a movie for a second or a third time. Like I just don't enjoy repeated viewings. Like I know we're like coming off of Christmas and like for some of you, like you watch It's a Wonderful Life or White Christmas or Elf or whatever, like every year. And like I just don't get it. Like I'm glad that works for you if you do that, but like it doesn't make sense. Like even if I enjoyed watching a movie there's just very little appeal for me in watching a movie when I know what's coming. I just don't enjoy rewatching movies all that much. But what I do enjoy is watching bonus features at the end of movies. Right? Like, it's just I love the way they give you a behind-the-scenes look at all that went into making the movie. Like all the all the decisions and all the planning that the director had to do and the decisions he had to make in order to make the movie come out just right. Like, I love getting that behind-the-scenes look. Right? And one of the best examples of this, right, that there's this box set of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? and it's like the extended edition of all the movies. Right? So the trilogy, obviously, is three movies long, right? but the movies, being the extended editions, are so long, like each movie requires two discs to fit the whole movie. So that's like that's six discs just for the movies themselves. But if you buy the whole collection, you actually get way more than six discs. In fact, if you buy that collection, you get 15 discs altogether. Because the other nine are all dedicated to special bonus features for the movie. And in fact, those nine discs contain 26 hours of bonus material for the making of The Lord of the Rings. Like now, to be clear, I don't own those DVDs. I've never, I haven't watched all 26 hours. Right? But the bits I have seen are quite fascinating. Right? Just, like all that went into like Peter Jackson's mind and the decisions he made in making those movies, it just helped give us a better sense of like why the story was made the way it was. Right? And kind of so, like I just love that kind of behind the scenes look at how things. Happen. And so this morning, it's what I want to do with kind of the Christmas story. I want to take us kind of behind the scenes, as it were, to look at why God, acting as director, not just of a movie, but of the whole universe, brought the Christmas story about the way that he did. And to do that, I want to look at Galatians chapter 1, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The verses also be on the screen if you prefer to read them that way. And while you turn there, let me just kind of lay out the next couple of weeks for you. And so this morning we're, we're starting a series that's kind of a new series, but it's also kind of a continuation of our Advent series. And so the Advent series I had called Waiting. We are considering how the Old Testament people were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And this morning, we're starting this series that I'm calling Still Waiting. Right? And my goal in this series is to kind of reflect on the fact that as great as Jesus' first coming was, we, we still live in a broken world. Right? 
And we're still waiting for Jesus' second advent, his second coming, that will finally put an end to all the pain and suffering in the world. Like Jesus will come again at the end of time to bring to completion the work he started at the first Christmas. And in this series, I want to consider how we should live our lives as we wait for that second advent. So as I said this morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And in that passage, this is what Paul says. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because we are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So we are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So in this passage, we don't get any of the details of the Christmas story itself. Right? There's no, no shepherds here. There's no mangers. There's no even Mary or Joseph in this passage. But what the passage does give us is like, the why of the Christmas story. In particular, like, what we see in this passage is the answer to the question that our whole Advent series was kind of considering, which is, like, why did God wait to send his Messiah? And what we see here is that God waited for just the right time. And at just the right time, God sent his son that we might receive adoption as his sons and daughters. So if you like, well, remember like just that one thing, right, that at just the right time, God sent his son like, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. So, like, I hope that like, sticks in your mind. Like, that's why God sent his son, that we might receive adoption as his sons and daughters. So as we go through kind of the this passage and the sermon this morning, I just want to spend a little bit of time on each part of that sentence. The first one I'll talk about, like, how it is that Jesus came at just the right time. Then I want to think about what it means that God sent his son. And then finally I want to talk about like, what it means that we are adopted as children of God. So first I want to look at how it was at just the right time that God sent his son. So in verse 4, Paul writes, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so the first thing we, we see in the passage is the phrase, when the set time had fully come. That's a bit of a confusing phrase. Like, What does it mean for the set time to fully come? And different translations kind of translate this in slightly different ways. But the general idea that Jesus came at just the right time. Right? Like God didn't just like wake up one day and just kind of flippantly decide, hey, you know what, now would be a good time to send my son to the world. Like God purposely, purposely chose the exact time that he would send Jesus into the world. 
Like, God doesn't do anything accidentally or coincidentally. Like, he has ordained everything to come to pass in his exact timing. Just as a good director right, carefully orchestrates the scenes of a movie to reach their climax at the right time. Like, so God has orchestrated all the events of human history to begin to reach their climax with the birth of Jesus. That then raises the question, like, why was the time that Jesus came the right time? Why was 2,000 years ago the right time for God to send his son? And obviously, like, part of the answer to that question is beyond our knowing. Like, God is infinitely wise, and he has reasons for sending Jesus at the time that he did that we cannot fully comprehend. However, if we just kind of consider the situation... I think there's at least two reasons that our human reason can tell us that that timing was advantageous. The first of those reasons is that it was the right time theologically. David Platt, writing about this passage, says, Everything that was going on in the Old Testament was leading up to this point. The promise to Abraham had been given. The law of Moses had done its work to drive men to anticipate Christ. And over 300 prophecies had been given. All of it aimed toward this time. Christmas didn't just happen. It was the culmination of a plan devised in the eternal counsel of God before the creation of the world. God had used the whole of the Old Testament history to set up Jesus' coming. He had foreshadowed His coming with prophecies, And he had showed his people their need of a Savior through the law. And he had given them time to feel their need of a Savior. And finally, the moment was just right and God sends his Son. But not only was it the right time theologically, it was also the right time for God to send Jesus culturally. At the time of Jesus' coming, the Greek language had become the kind of the common language over most of the known world, which means that like after Jesus came and after he died and his disciples went out and they went from city to city and country to country sharing the good news about Jesus, they were able to share that good news in a common language. Like they didn't have to learn a new language to go to different places to share the good news. We've had friends over the years who have gone to be missionaries in different parts of the world and parts of the world where English is not understood. And like before they even go to that place, they would spend between like six months and two years, depending on the language, just learning the language they would need to speak in order to effectively share the gospel with the people they were trying to reach. And that's a long time to spend just learning a language. And of course, God could have overcome language barrier for the early Christians. However, There's no doubt that so much of the world having a common language was instrumental in allowing the gospel to spread quickly in the early years of the church. And it did spread incredibly quickly. By 180, so 70 years or so after Jesus' death, Christianity, despite being an illegal and highly persecuted religion, had spread from Israel 
out into modern-day Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Egypt and Spain and France and even up into England, all within 70 years of Jesus' death. And of course, right, most of that spread is attributed to the power of the gospel. In fact, that the gospel is powerful and appealing. But there's also no doubt that so many people sharing a common language also helped in the rapid spread of the message of Jesus. And not only was the language in common, but by the time of Jesus' coming, the Roman Empire kind of established itself as the, the dominant empire in much of the world. And because they were the dominant empire, it ushered in what historians call the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. And like during this time, because there was this peace, there was very little warfare, and so the Romans can kind of turn their attention away from war and toward building infrastructure like roads. And this lack of warfare and this strong infrastructure allowed the disciples to travel freely and easily from place to place, again allowing the gospel to spread swiftly beyond Israel. So all of these things work together so that 2,000 years ago was just the right time for God to send his son. But then the question becomes, who exactly was this son that God sent? In this passage, we see kind of three important truths about this son. And the first of those is that the son is fully God. Now, if you're reading this passage carefully, not just taking my word for it, you may look at this passage and you say, like, where does this say anything about the son being God here? Where does it say anything about the son being divine? Like, it doesn't really say it directly. But the key word in the passage to understand that God, or that Jesus is fully God, the key word is the word sent. God sent his son. God did not create his son. God did not choose a human to make him his son and call him his son. God sent his son. And this word sent implies that this son had existed forever. Like He was not made. He was not created. He was not brought in. He had existed and he was then sent. In other of his writings, Paul calls this sent son, he calls him the image of the invisible God. And he calls him the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is the son that God sends. The son that is fully God. He's fully divine. But not only is the son fully divine, he is also fully man, fully human. Paul writes in the passage that God sent his son born of a woman. Like, like Jesus could have just dropped out of heaven, like some kind of superhero. Right? Could have looked human, but not actually been human at all. He could have come and not really experienced any of the frailties and challenges of human life. Right? But he didn't do that. He was born to Mary as a baby. He was raised as a typical human child. He experienced the full range of life experiences, all the challenges that come with it. Yet he did not sin. As he entered adulthood and began his ministry, he remained fully human. Like We read of him getting hungry and thirsty and tired. Like Jesus mourned and he got angry and he experienced joy. 
He suffered and faced all the challenges we face. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us how important that is. He tells us that it's only because Jesus was fully human that Jesus can identify with us and help us in our times of trouble. If the Son had not been born of a woman, if He had not been fully man, He would not have been capable of fulfilling the mission that God sent Him on. He would not have been capable of completing the task of redeeming mankind from the power of sin and death. But in order to complete that task, not only did He need to be fully God and fully man, He also needed to be perfectly obedient. Paul here tells us that not only was Jesus born of a woman, but because he was born of a woman, he was born under the law. And Jesus was born under the same burden of the law as every other person. But he was the only one in all of history to fully keep the law, to never sin. Despite the fact that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, he resisted temptation and perfectly obeyed the law. So Jesus was fully God, he was fully human, and he was fully obedient to the law. And these things work together to create this beautiful picture. Paul tells us that if any of these things had not been true, if any one of them was missing, Jesus would not have been capable of redeeming those who were under the law. If all these things weren't true of Jesus... He could not have saved us from our sins. And we would be without hope. If He had not been fully infinite God, He would not have been able to bear the infinite wrath of God on our behalf. He needed to be fully man in order to pay for man's sin. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us in the Old Testament that the blood of animals never truly paid the penalty for sin. They only pointed forward to Jesus. He needed to be fully man. And he needed to be fully obedient to the law. Otherwise, he would have needed to pay the penalty for his own sin and therefore not been able to pay the penalty for our sin. So we praise God that when he sent his son, he sent the only one who was capable of fulfilling the mission sent before him. He sent God the Son, fully God, fully man, and fully obedient to the law. So at just the right time, God sent the Son. But then the question becomes, like, what did God accomplish through sending His Son? Like Jesus, by coming to earth and living a fully obedient life, and not only dying on the cross for us, like He accomplished a lot of things. In the first three chapters that come before what we read this morning, Paul has been primarily focused on one aspect of of what Jesus accomplished. So in Galatians 1 through 3, Paul has focused on the fact that Jesus accomplished our justification. So for example, in Galatians 2.16, Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by work of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
because by work of the law, no one will be justified. Right? And this word justified, right? this idea of justification, and Paul is using this picture of God as a judge, or this courtroom imagery. He's picturing God as a judge. And the one who is justified is declared not guilty because they've placed their faith in Jesus and therefore they're not guilty of their sins. And instead God declares Jesus guilty in our place. Paul tells us that this declaration of not guilty is made not because of anything a person does. We can't earn this declaration of not guilty. Instead, we get it because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And this idea of justification, right, that God declared us not guilty of our sins, has long been kind of like one of the central, been seen as one of the central truths of the gospel. And rightfully so. It is central to the gospel. Martin Luther called justification the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It is absolutely essential that we understand that it's only because of the work of Jesus and not because of anything good in us that God declared us not guilty. Right? And so like this, this doctrine of justification is essential. And that's why Paul starts his letter. The first three chapters are all about justification. Right? But the good news, right, the gospel, does not end with justification. Like there are times we're tempted to stop there. Like, believe Jesus, your sins are forgiven, period, full stop, the end. That's where we stop. But the doctrine of, or the gospel does not end with the doctrine of justification. There is much more to the gospel than God just being the judge who declares us not guilty. It goes deeper than that. It's richer than that. Because not only does God declare us not guilty, but Paul tells us here in this passage that God sent his son so that when we place our faith in him, we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, expresses the beauty of the truth when he writes this. He says, To be right with God the judge is a great thing. Right? That's justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But, to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. To be loved, to be adopted into God's family is an even greater truth than the fact that we are right with God the judge. So the school I used to teach at, I had a co-worker who along with her husband, they adopted three little girls. And these girls were a different ethnicity than my co-worker, so it's fairly evident right, that these children were not her biological children. And the coworker would go on a rant sometimes about all the weird questions people would ask about adoption. But the question that drove her crazy, the question that irritated her the most, was that one time someone asked her this question. After seeing her adopted children, they asked her the question, do you have any children of your own? And this coworker, she's telling this story about how like, it took everything in her power not to scream at the person who asked the question, like, these children are our own. They are fully, wholly, and entirely ours. Like, that's how adoption works. And these children, 
My coworker had adopted all the rights, all the privileges, all the status. That's her child. That's what adoption is. And so it is with us and God. We're adopted into God's family. And because of that, we have all the rights and benefits that come with being God's child. And this passage lays out two of those benefits for us. And the first of those is that because we are God's child, we have intimacy with God. Verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. Before we're Christians, like our sin divides and separates us from God. Even in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter into God's presence, and that only once each year. But now, because we've been adopted into God's family, we can approach God at any time, just as a child would approach his father confidently and in love. David Platt, writing about this, says this. He says, Do we realize the privilege of approaching God, which was once reserved only for Moses in the Old Testament, is now what happens when you do something as simple as bowing your head before a meal? The privilege of approaching God was once reserved only for Moses. And now it happens every time we pray before we eat. The question is, like, do we value and appreciate the intimacy we can have with God? Do we then avail ourselves of that intimacy? Do we, when times get hard, do we cry out to our Abba, Father? Sometimes it's argued that this word Abba, if best translated Daddy, which kind of gives the impression that it's a word that's only used by children, but I think like the Bible actually presents this word Abba in a much deeper way. It's a word that's used both by adult children as well as young children to refer to their father. And whenever this word is used, the sense behind it is this deep calling out for a, a father who will be a, a protector and to be with them. And so, for example, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's pleading with his Abba, Father, if at all possible, to provide another way for sinners to be saved so that he doesn't have to go through the agony of the cross. Of course, we know that God doesn't provide another way in that case. But Jesus felt the intimacy with his Father that allowed him to ask. And then to trust that if the answer was no, like his Father still loved him. And that's the kind of relationship we need with our Heavenly Father when life's circumstances come to crush us. That's the kind of relationship we need with God, our Father, when we get terrible medical news or when we lose a loved one. When it seems that there is no hope for comfort, we can turn to our Abba Father because of the work of the Spirit in us, which we received when we received adoption as His children. God deeply loved us as His children, and because of that, we can have deep 
intimacy with Him. That's one of the benefits of being adopted as God's sons and daughters. The second benefit we see in this passage is that we also have an inheritance from God as His children. Verse 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. But the ultimate indication that an adopted child is fully a member of the family is that they receive a full share in the inheritance. Because of our status as children of God, we receive a full inheritance from God. And this inheritance includes all the blessings and benefits of eternal life with God. We will be forever with Him, free from pain, free from suffering, full of joy and wonder as we spread eternity, as we spend eternity with Him. But the remarkable thing about, about verse 7 is something that gets kind of lost in our English translations. And that is this, that Paul in verse 7 uses the singular form of the word you. Like, up to this point in the passage, every time Paul has said you, it's been the plural form of you. And one of the things I learned in Louisville when we lived there is that there are people who actually use the word y'all in everyday conversation. Like, before we moved there, I thought it was just something people said in movies or something. But like, the people who actually say y'all. And like... In situations like this passage, it's incredibly helpful to have a way to distinguish between y'all, all of you, plural, and you, singular. In the first six verses of this passage, Paul has been speaking generally to all his readers, right? To y'all. He's speaking to everyone broadly. But then in verse 7, he switches. And he makes it personal. He's saying, you, individual you, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son and an heir. I taught fifth grade. I'd occasionally have to deal with misbehavior. And sometimes, out of laziness, even though I knew it was like a couple of kids causing problems, I just heard to address the whole class. Be like, hey guys, cut it out. You know, we've got we to gotta be quiet in the hallway, whatever. Like I just heard to address the whole class. And that never worked. But then, like, I found out I had like, much better success if I would find the kids who were actually causing the problem. Right? Pull them aside. Like, get down, look at them in the eye. Talk to them face to face and tell them, like, I need you, individual you, singular you, to fix your behavior. And I find that true in my life too. Like, when I'm in a group and the speaker's addressing the whole group, it's really easy to disregard what is said. Like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. He's speaking to someone else. However, when someone pulls me aside and speaks directly to me face-to-face, right, the message is far more likely to get through. That's what Paul's doing here. He is saying that you, right, not the person sitting next to you, not your spouse, not the stranger sitting in front of you, but you, if you believe in Jesus, you are adopted as a child of God. And because you are a child, you receive an inheritance as God's child. You. Individual you. 
as we think about how to respond to this text, the first question that needs to be asked is, are you a child of God? Not, did you grow up in church? Do you come to church all the time? And not did you grow up in a family full of Christians, but have you, individual you, received the church that you, just like the Son, were born under the law, but that unlike the Son, you did not keep the law of God perfectly. And therefore, you've been separated from God. And that therefore, your only hope of having your sins forgiven and having eternal life with God is through trusting in Jesus to make you a son and to forgive your sins. Have you placed your faith in Him so that you are a child of God? And for those of us who are here who are children of God, who have trusted in Jesus, if this passage could affect like one change in your heart as you leave here today, my hope would be at this. I just hope that hearing this text will leave you with a deeper sense of confidence that our God sovereignly ruled the universe. God planned for Jesus to come at just the right time in history. God planned for His Son to be crucified and to die. God is never caught off guard by the events that take place. Even as we see things happen in the world that we wish were different and that we wish wouldn't have happened, we can be confident that God will use those events to bring about His good purposes. The God who is not caught off guard by the crucifixion of His own Son is not caught off guard by any of the horrible events in our world today. Even in the midst of tragedy, God is in the process of making all things new, of making His name great, and of bringing about His plan for the world. And we will see that come to fruition ultimately when the second advent comes, when Jesus returns and He will set all things right at the end of history. But until that day comes, we wait. We are still waiting. But we wait with a confidence that was given to us by Jesus' first advent, His first coming. That's really the beauty of what we celebrate at Christmas. God could have left us to deal with the consequences of our own sin. But instead, His Son gave up the glories of heaven, came down to us to be born to a woman, so we could be adopted as children and made right with Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again that you sent your Son at just the right time. In your infinite wisdom, you knew the right time and you sent him then. So that he could live a fully human yet sinless life and die on our behalf, be raised again from the dead. 
and that through event that you orchestrated, the message of all that Jesus did has filtered out from Israel, from country to country, down through history until it reached the ears of each one of us and brought us to this place right now. Over these last 2,000 years, you've been at work to advance your kingdom, to advance the gospel message. You have bent that into each one of our hearts. We praise you for that. Now we just pray that you would help us to respond and to live life in this still fallen and broken world in a way that glorifies you while we wait for the second advent. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song, then I'll come up and dismiss us at the end. If you want, uh, please stand up, stretch your legs a little bit. I hope you'll notice the first words of this song fit with this sermon really well. God sends His Son that this son that God sent does still live. Would you go seeking to glorify him as you wait for his second advent? You are dismissed. God sent his son